Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to The Flow Line. I'm here with Matt Offenbacher. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I think I'm still running on the coffee, so... Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm on my afternoon Java, so I do two in the morning, one in the afternoon. That's my max. How many cups do you drink? One. You're on one? That's it a day? I don't handle caffeine well. Okay. So, like, if I have it afternoon, I have trouble getting to sleep. Ah. So, do you, like, naturally have lots of energy throughout the day, then? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. You, know, I, you know, I'm an early riser, so I usually yeah. get to the office between 6 or 6.30, have my cup of coffee... And then normally after lunch, I crash pretty hard. Like it is true mentally when you put in like seven or eight hours, there's something slows down and you need a break. So that's normally when I, yeah. ish, I'll drive home and kind of regroup when I get back to the house. Yep. Makes sense. I mean, there's a, you know, circadian rhythm's a real thing. Actually, I heard something interesting the other day. So Floyd Mayweather, obviously, if you put familiar, you know, world-class boxer, blah, blah, blah. So apparently his schedule is crazy where he gets up at like five and six in the afternoon every day he stays up all night but then he goes to bed in the morning and sleeps all day and the reason for that is because most of his fights like primetime fights are like late into the evening and so he's now just trained his body because he says that where he gets the biggest energy surge is like four to five hours after he gets up Mm -hmm. so instead of getting up at like whatever, eight in the morning. And then, you know, by noon, he's got a bunch of energy. Then having to stay up all day, then do his fight. He's now just switched his whole entire schedule to where he sleeps all day and is up all night because of that. That sounds really depressing, though. (laughs) Just think about all those people in like, you know, the northern latitudes where they get all depressed because it's like dark all the time. And yeah, you know, I know. Weird. I'll have to ask. Maybe we'll get him on the podcast one day and we can ask about his sleeping pattern. Maybe offer him some Red Bull or something. (laughs) Well, we're not here to talk about Floyd Mayweather's sleeping patterns, but we are here to talk about casing runs. Aren't we, Matt? Yes. Excellent. We've discussed this topic before, but I think it's worth revisiting just as much as most topics are worth revisiting because things always change and we learn something new every day. Matt, with regards to casing runs, why don't you go ahead for the listeners, perhaps maybe new listeners, what is casing? Let, let's just start there. So we drill a hole section. We got a you know certain size drill bit. And then when we've drilled that hole section, we normally drill the well in multiple sections. We'll then go ahead and run steel pipe and we will cement that pipe in place to provide a barrier and seal it before we drill further ahead. Mm -hmm. So you you drill in steps. And so each section gets progressively smaller, but casing is that pipe, and basically it's important to secure the well. It's very hard to get a hold of right now. (laughs) Right, yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, but it's a really important part of well security and well integrity, not only while drilling, but throughout the whole life of the well. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And naturally, when you have drilling fluids in the well, you know, it's important to consider what happens when that casing goes in. So not only do you displace fluid, there's some things that can happen while you're running casing. And the worst thing that can happen is you can't get casing to the depth that you're hoping for. 
that happens. It's just the nature of the beast. We do everything we possibly can to avoid it within reason. But why don't you go ahead and elaborate, Matt, on what kind of issues you can have when you're running casing? Yeah, so we'll circle this back into, you know, how I see it as a fluids-related issue. But, you know, just to even set the scene, think about that your drill pipe is mostly smaller other than the bit and the drilling assembly at the end of the BHA, the pipe is considerably smaller than the hole size. But when you're on casing, you normally have much smaller clearances, which means you go to run this casing, you're trying to fit it in a hole that a flexible drill string may slide in and out of more readily than this bigger pipe. And in light of that, if you just think about you know, your directional job, right? So you might have a ledge or some, you know, some what are what's called dog leg severity or especially micro dog legs. You'd see some spot where you kind of hang up and you've got to try and work the casing through by rotating it, doing some other things. We don't ever want that to happen, but sometimes that's completely out of our control. And, you know, if the hole isn't clean, and, and in our previous episode, we talked a lot about cleanup cycles and keeping, you know, making sure you're free of, extra cuttings and certainly cavings, but that small, you know, clearance, you could have, you know, pack off. So something falls in, I don't have a lot of room to work with, I hang up and then, oh no, I can't get my casing down, but I can't get it up either. Because sometimes when we get into trouble, what do we do? We come out of the hole, we lay down the casing, it's horrible. Go in, do a clean out with a drilling assembly, try and make sure everything's all smooth and pick up casing again. It's very expensive and time consuming, Yeah, but it's a thing which we don't want to do. And then just even thinking about putting a larger pipe into the well bore and how fast you run that pipe, you could surge the well. So this would be, if you think about like a plunger and shoving it down, what does it do? It applies greater pressure onto the formation and because of that sort of pressure differential or that resistance there, you could actually induce losses. And, you know, to combine all of those risks and challenges, consider that depending on the type of technique that you use to run your casing, and we'll go through a couple of important ones, you may or may not be able to circulate. So the idea of circulating to pump cuttings out of the way or wash out a ledge or do something along those lines might not be an option in a number of circumstances we see every day. Right. No, that's so true. And there are, I mean, the casing running speed can be kind of tricky. And obviously that's why a lot of times we'll run surge models and stuff like that. But there are, again, I think if you're in an, like an exploration type environment where you're not familiar with your frac gradient and stuff like that, it's a little easier. But yeah, if you're in somewheres where you're, there's a lot of uncertainties and hopefully you've kind of gauged that as you're drilling. But yeah, I mean, several issues can occur. And but again, you know, now, fortunately, sort of, I guess, you know, because we've drilled on conventionals for so long, we're familiar with how fast we can run it. A lot of times you can run it as fast as what the hands on the rig can run it uh, and you're not going to run into any issues. But, you know, there's different areas that require a little bit more attention. And yeah, you do. And especially now with the way we've drilled wells now, you know, for a long time, mile and a half laterals. OK, you know, not bad. Two miles. Eh, now you're pushing three mile laterals. I mean, you know, like we've had episodes in the past talking about extended reach drilling, especially up in the Northeast, they do three, three mile laterals, which is, you know, quite common. And that requires some pretty interesting techniques to get casing down. But regardless, even, you know, in the Permian, we have some customers that do some unique stuff to get casing down. They're only two mile laterals, but there's some pretty high friction there. So Matt, why don't you go ahead and talk about flotation? Cause that's something that's pretty common, at least that I've seen, you know, quite a bit recently. Yeah, it's very common. And the idea is 
Well, look, if I'm, you know, running casing into a horizontal, it wants to sit on the bottom side of the hole, right? And not only that, but when it's riding up against the bottom side of the hole, it's going to hit any ledge, any, you know, nonconformity that's on the bottom side of the hole. And I've got to kind of like rotate my way through it, assuming I can rotate. But the other thing is all of the weight, all the friction of encountering all that, even with centralizers and that sort of thing that you might put on casing. And so somebody came up with the idea of, well, what if we just filled part of the casing string with air so that you could float it down the horizontal? Yeah. So that's exactly like it sounds. Basically, you put in a seal collar. It's basically an airlock at a set depth in the casing. You screw it on. You backfill the rest of it with fluid, but everything ahead of that is air. And then when you get casing to bottom, you'll actually pressure up and burst that airlock, and now you can pump fluid all the way out. However, when you're running casing, you can't circulate. Right. Yeah, you got to get pretty deep before you want to break the airlock. Yeah, and I mean, I mean yeah, because you're pretty much assuming you're probably not going to be able to get the casing much further. Right. That's been, for a while there, I mean, this has become very common, but for a while it was sort of something that people, you know, would tell you, hey, we're floating the casing. Now, I've run into enough scenarios where somebody says, hey, you know, what can we do? And I'm like, well, what if we circulate and they cut you off and they're like, we're floating the casing. You're like, okay, I've done much better about assuming or at least asking the question first because it's that common, you know, are you floating the casing? And once again, it's important because it shows, you know, your wellbore quality before you even go to run casing. I mean, it matters a lot, but it matters even more if there's nothing I can do as far as a fluid approach to advance the casing other than rotate it. Right. Yeah, no, and I think there is like, cases where you can, if I remember correctly, that there's been instances where things have gotten tight and instead of automatically just breaking the airlock and circulating, you kind of like, you can rotate it as you're trying to go down, but you got to be extremely careful depending on your torque. But yeah, it helps. But when you do start getting a little sticky, then you really got to make a pretty big decision. It's like, do we keep ramming on it or do we break it and all the money we spent trying to, you know, on this airlock or whatever. I don't know the difference between running it conventionally or running it you know floating it but i'm sure there is a cost associated with that let's talk about shoes matt and not the ones we're wearing on our feet which Mm -hmm. but casing does wear shoes doesn't it it does (laughs) one shoe you will yes (laughs) one that sometimes looks like lipstick (laughs) but uh so just thinking about and we're going to talk about a little bit but remember you're going to run all this equipment then you're going to basically encase it cement and then drill through it to get to your next hole section So it's not going to necessarily, and you're not drilling anything, hopefully, but you'll want something at the end that if you can circulate, has some nozzles. I mean, eventually you'll be able to circulate, but you know, it could be as simple as a a guide shoe, which kind of looks like lipstick, if you will. It goes to a point on one side. And the idea there is if you had to rotate or whatever, there's one point that can hopefully get through the center of the well bore Mm -hmm. so that even if you had a ledge or something sticking up, it would just, the angled portion of it below would just kind of climb up it and keep advancing. Yeah. And, you know, those can come as really, really basic. If you expect you might have to work through some things, there's, you know, even what are called reamer shoes, which have sometimes some hard facing on them to basically cut your way through if you think you're going to see some tight spots. One of the really interesting things with some of these reamer shoes, though, is that because they're designed to grind on the wellbore, that means they have to essentially have what are like blade light components which reduces the circulating area or the flow area around it. Mm. So the irony is you may have issues circulating just because you're running a guide shoe. 
So it can be one of those where you think you're helping yourself out and then you're not. You're creating your own mess. But those are going to be at the very end and that's what you circulate out of. And you can actually see the nozzle configurations when you look at pictures and stuff. There's some great stuff on YouTube. But the overall flow area, it's a lot. Like it's designed, you're going to pump cement through this at some point, right? So there's a lot of open flow area and it's sort of pointed in a way that some of them will mark it that it's like you could basically jet what's ahead of you when you can circulate if you find an obstruction or something like that. Once again, when you can circulate. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's exactly right. So what about there's autofill tools, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Let's talk about the tools that you're going to use. Yeah. So now remember, the ultimate goal is I get casing on bottom and I'm going to pump this really, really heavy fluid. And I don't want this fluid to YouTube or fall back inside the string because I'm going to pump the cement, but I don't want cement inside the casing. I want it outside the casing between the pipe and the well bore. Yeah. So one of the things that you'll do is you basically want a one-way valve. You want something to make sure that this heavy fluid cannot come back inside the string after you pump it so that you can chase it with a lighter fluid or something of that nature and spot it in place. And so traditionally, that might just be a float shoe, which is a one-way valve. So fluid can go out, but it can't go back in. Well, if you're worried about you know trying to equalize pressure and limit surge pressures, especially in narrow margin scenarios, these are a bit more popular, but think about having kind of a pressure equalization valve. So now, you know, you can equalize fluid pressure as you run your casing. So autofill is what it means. It lets fluid go in to limit the surge pressure as you run the casing in. And there's a few different forms and functions of that. It used to be something you only saw in deep water. And I think my assumption is that all the patents ran out because they're all pretty, they're pretty simple. But now you see a number of different varieties of them. Another, sometimes if you're talking about running hydraulics for your casing run, doing surgeon swab analysis, you might ask, are you running an autofill tool? Because you can sometimes run calculations and see how much lower your ECD will be with the autofill. Right. And so that's another one to consider when you think about, you know, fluid is one of those tools. And so, you know... There's all kinds of bells and whistles. They're all pretty basic because remember, you're going to drill all this stuff out. Yeah. Or for the most part, even unless it's your production casing, there's an expectation you're going to cover it in cement. So this isn't the most expensive jewelry in the world, but I think I mentioned kind of, you know, some of that. The other thing I wanted to mention was the float collar. Yeah. And the reason here is it doesn't really affect us all that much, but once again, you're going to see pieces of this stuff come at the shakers and most people if you know you're used to seeing it but if you haven't seen sometimes they're brightly colored you know especially like the guide shoes and stuff are normally like red or pink or something i mean usually say hey what's that weird thing coming across the shakers yeah anyways the float collar will have some sort of a seat where what you're going to do when you go to cement is you drop the plug right so you have a mechanical separator between you basically pump that plug down, it pushes cement outside, goes through that one-way check valve, and it's stuck up in the annulus, and hopefully, you know, seals everything. But the main thing to know is you're going to drill through all that stuff, and you may see it at the shakers, I would expect you will, and it will make you look more knowledgeable and experienced if you don't run to the well site superintendent's trailer with some mystery material that came across the shakers. Yeah. As if we... 
you don't need to assume that it's the directional tools losing their elastomers or something like that. <laughs> that I've come across a few folks who've come in a panic. It wasn't me, but I could have totally been susceptible to it early on. Sure, yeah. Where they're of like, course. oh my gosh, shoot, I think the mud motor shot. Right. And it's like, we are drilling float equipment right now. You do know that. Yeah. Oh, it's supposed to be there. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, working rigs or, you know, even as a mud engineer, when you're fairly new, you're kind of like, oh, I mean, I noticed something. I'm going to save the day. And then they quickly tell you, well, that's actually what's really happening. And then you kind of feel like an idiot. But they have hopefully appreciate you for speaking up because then they know if there's something serious happening, then, you know, Johnny's going to come up and save the day, hopefully. Right. Well, but they won't say that. They'll just never let you hear the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So, you know, aside from, you know, running casing, we've got jewelry on there, which, you know, these are tools and things that are, you know, attached to the end of the casing to help with Again, everything we've described, but there's different things on the fluid side that we need to consider and then we need to adjust possibly depending on, you know, the characteristics of the well before you come out to run casing. So Matt, let's talk a little bit about fluid treatment and, you know, right out of the gate, when you get to TD, the first thing you start doing is circulate and clean the hole. So let's go ahead and describe what we would do in that case known as cleanup cycles. Well, you would circulate the hole given a, you know, a lot of folks I think are really dialing in how long they really need to circulate for. Yeah. And I like the conversation, you know, how clean does a clean hole need to be? Mm-hmm. You'll never get a hundred percent of the cuttings out. It just needs to be clean enough. Yeah. You never want to put yourself in a position where you risk that pack off or what have you. And so the first thing you would do is get cuttings out of the hole. Now we have talked, I'll jump ahead in our outline that the audience cannot see. (laughs) And I'll say, we've talked about before running casing, if you're going to thin the fluid, maybe to minimize surge pressures and help with circulating to condition before you run casing, you probably want to start thinning the fluid long before your cleanup cycles start. Talked about how, you know, especially if you're adding a thinner and some base fluid, you could actually induce sag by over-treating. And so you really want that stuff worked into the system well before you get to TD. And so... That is one other thing you can do, get the fluid clean and make sure the fluid rheology especially is in a place where the fluid can be circulated and displaced and all that good stuff. But, you know, I know you've done a lot of this, which would be spotting something like a lubricant. Yeah. Basically before, you know, to make sure that when you go back in that hole, it'll be more lubricious coming back in. So I have beads, but, you know, surfactant is, you know, a liquid lubricant. You've done both, I'm sure, but what would you add to spotting beads or spotting lubricant? Again, it comes down to what you've experienced and what's worked. I've seen both work, but I prefer spotting lubricant. Now, granted, it depends on the system too, I think. So if you're, you know, an oil-based mud, spotting lubricant, I think, I mean, fortunately, we've come up and designed a great oil-based mud lubricant, but it always hasn't been available In that case, you know, spotting beads would be good or even graphite. I've spotted graphite. But in water-based mud, I would elect to go with a liquid lubricant over beads. Again, to quantify that and to justify it, it's just based off experience and then what I've done and I've seen work. But again, I'm sure some would argue, you know, beads. And then two, a lot of it, okay, is driven off economics. Okay, well, you know, what's the price of the lubricant that you're offering? And how much, you know, are you going 2%? Are you going 4 Are you going 5 beads are you going four pounds per barrel are you doing 12 pounds per barrel how tight is it so i mean there's so many different factors to play and again it comes down to who's used what out on location if the you know company representative has always used beads in that area and it's worked 99 percent of the time chances are that individual is going to want to push for beads so again there's no real right answer it just kind of depends on who's involved and 
what kind of cost environment you're in at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think more abrasive formations might favor beads. Um, okay, good point. I'm just speaking generally, not to say one doesn't work and I blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, but I think it depends you know, on the formation. Yeah, that's a yeah, good point. You know, and then I think on the surfactant perspective, I had an interesting conversation. A customer actually asked us the other day, you know, well, like, how do you know how much to add? Like, mm. you already have lubricant in the system. But if you think about surfactants, what do they do? They're supposed to stick to metal, right? Mm-hmm. That's their lifelong dream. <laughs> so yeah. if we're thinking about that, what am I doing when I run casing? I'm introducing a whole bunch of new metal. Yeah. A lot of surface, all that good stuff. And so it's a very reasonable justification to say, look, yeah, I know we ran 3% or 2% by volume while drilling, and we kind of maintain that, but I'm introducing all new material. And the other thing is these surfactants, sometimes they can drift a little, right? Like they might start sticking to the formation if you leave them be for too long or or what have you. You want enough excess and the volumes are small enough that I don't think anybody, like you're not saving enough money by a, you know, to not mitigate the risk. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so sure, could you get away with less? Be my guest. But it becomes quite reasonable in my opinion to say, look, for the open hole volume and up inside casing, I think we probably need to run four or 6% or whatever. And we've actually done that with customers. We've run, I think actually the customer asked for a certain percentage and we were like, you know what? I think we dial it back a little bit. We're pretty comfortable with that. And once we had a few good runs in where casing ran perfectly, said, okay, let's run it down a little bit more. And then, you know, it just gets to a point where you say, do I really want to risk this any further given the marginal savings? Because we've alluded to not being able to run casing or even extra time trying to work casing through spots and all that kind of thing. It's time where the hole is left open. It's, you know, rig time. It's time that everybody else is waiting to start the cement job. You know, there's all these other things happening on surface mm-hmm. that everybody's waiting on because something isn't going to plan. So, yeah, you know, a few more gallons of lubricant could really be a huge savings factor. Yeah. So, you know, those are things before you come out of the hole, having a plan, having the conversation. Do we want to spot beads? Do we do this, that, or the other? You know, and, you know, going back to your point a little bit, you know, water-based mud, it's a lot more common, I would say. For oil-based mud, we know it's already inherently lubricious. Mm-hmm. But if we're having torque issues drilling, maybe that's a sign that we should do something for running casing. You right. know, even in water-based, maybe you don't need a lubricant. Maybe you're running a polymer mud that's pretty inherently lubricious. Yep. But if you see some torque issues while you're drilling, Maybe this time around you say, you know what, in preparation of this casing run, let's spot some beads or, you know, get some lubricant out for that particular operation. Right. Really, you're not talking a huge amount of volume. A lot of times you're, you know, basically covering the lateral or maybe even just a little less. But as you're running casing, you want it to be going up inside your curve. And so, you know, as you're displacing, obviously that lubricant and that fluid's going to be moving up whole. But again, it's not like you got to treat the entire system. It's just a sort of a, an isolated amount of volume that you spot down there. And especially if, you know, if, if you're drilling six and three quarter inch laterals, which many do, I would say majority, again, it's not a ton of money relative to like, you know, the way we always look at it is, okay, how much is it going to cost to spot it? Okay. X amount of dollars. Well, how much is that in rig rate? Mm-hmm. Like, so if all of a sudden it takes you two hours longer then it would have paid for itself. Yeah. Assuming it didn't. So, I mean, again, with, especially nowadays with I'm sure rig rates are just going through the roof. You're going to try and do everything you can to save a little time because a little bit of time is a lot of money. 
And it always is, but yeah. even now more so, in my opinion. Absolutely. So yeah, you know, assuming we get Casey in the bottom and everything's honky dory, everyone's high fiving, and you know, if now granted, if this is in the intermediate section or even surface hole, you have to keep drilling, and so we call that drilling out. So you know, well, Matt, go ahead and let's talk about drilling out and, and what we have to consider for that, because you know, you're not only you're drilling. You know, you're drilling the equipment, you're drilling cement and a few other things there going on. So go ahead and then kind of describe what's happening there. Well, I think, you know, one of the first things to consider is how did the cement job go? Yeah. AKA, you know, look, we know these pressures, we know what we should expect, but well, you've enjoyed the experience of, you know, cement being flash set by something, maybe a poor (laughs) formulation or contamination. We're not sure, but somebody did something wrong and it didn't go well. But similarly, you know, if that float equipment fails, that little one-way valve, or we're not able to get the plug all the way to bottom because there's a leak, for example, you might have a lot more cement to drill out than you think. I mean, I've seen this so bad where they basically cemented the inside of the casing and they said, look, yeah, we're just going to get another rig out here. Like, we're going to continue drilling on the pad and we'll get a smaller rig at a lower rate to, like, just, clean all this up. Yeah. Like, it can be really bad because cement does not drill that fast. Which is, you know, there's an argument to be made that it shouldn't be able to be drilled very fast, given its job in the annulus. But when we go to drill it out, I mean, knowing how much we're probably going to face, one thing is drilling all this stuff out is an opportunity to condition the mud for the next interval. So these are the times where you could, you know, adjust fluid properties. It may be that you have to wait up or cut back or, you know, this is your time. And it's especially when we talk about, you know, you received oil-based mud from the mud plant, and it's not exactly in spec. Well, my argument is it doesn't need to be, and I think every mud engineer knows it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be by the time you are finished drilling out. So, you know, this is your moment, if you will. (laughs) Time Uh, to shine. Yeah, is get everything right so everything looks good at the next interval. And then, you know, the other part of it, of course, is communicating with the cementer. Did the cement set up the little cup? How hard is it? Oh, I can still pour it. <laughs> what am I going to encounter when I go to drill that cement? Will it be, you know, green and contaminate my water-based mud or, you know, potentially create other problems? Good to be aware of that. Be ready to pre-treat all that fun stuff. Yeah. Because it can just cost you a lot in product and cost to try and rebuild that mud after it's scorched up by green cement. that's exactly right yeah drilling out green cement is not fun not so much of a real issue or concern when you're using oil-based mud you know now granted i'm sure everyone's had a different experience but for the most part you might see your lime excess come up which is not a bad thing and you go on about your business but water-based mud completely different story you really got to pre-treat especially i mean depending on how much green cement there is, depending on what kind of water-based mud system you're using. But it can get thick and nasty and clobber up and, you know, lots of panic can occur unless everyone's familiar with what's happening. And so as a mud engineer, if you're using water-based mud and you're drilling out green cement, be aware, at least have your products available. Talk to the Derek hand, say, hey, you know, it looks like, you know, here's what to expect. Talk to the driller, perhaps the company rep, say, hey, it looks like things are going to come back pretty nasty. Are you okay with me dumping a bunch? Because I'd rather just dump it than have to spend a ton of money treating it. Just, you know, again, communicate the expectations. We're not sure what it's going to look like, but here are some options. Here's what I'd like to do. Here's the products I have available to treat it if in case we introduce some contamination. And then that would, okay, looks like you're well on your way to making sure we're okay. But you don't want to just sit there and think it's all, it's good. And the next thing you know, everything's, you know, your viscosity is through the roof and shakers are overflowing and 
people are running around freaking out because yeah, that happens. It, yeah, it, it sounds like a very familiar. <laughs> yes, I, offshore yeah. that's happened to me. And you're not talking about just a little bit of like, you know, 400 gallons a minute. It's like 1,200 <laughs> gallons a minute of just clobber and just complete chaos. I've been there and it sucked. But again, it happens and I learned from it and here we are today. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all moved on. Everyone's moved on. Okay. Yeah. 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 Little well, PTSD on that front, but it, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, and kind of, you know, to that point, even if you're using water based mud, so like if it's heavily treated with amine, for example, and you drill green cement, very high pH, mm-hmm. you'll get a nice ammonia smell on the rig, which doesn't make you very popular with anyone. <laughs> but I mean, we've encountered that where it wasn't cement encasing green cement. It was a bunch of plugs during like PNA operations. And they had this inhibitive mud left over and said, oh, well, let's use it for all our workover stuff. And we said that probably wasn't a good idea. And then everybody said they felt sick, but it was the green <laughs> cement, yeah. you know, the high pH burning up the amine and then, you know, the strong ammonia smell on the rig floor. Yeah. So that's a very good point. And yeah, again, with water-based mud, it can, you know, your pH, your hardness, which, you know, goes into viscosity, yield point, all that sort of stuff, your gel strengths, it, it can get pretty tricky. And, you know, it's one of those you know, everything we're discussing here, what could go wrong, it's hopefully very few and far between. But when it does go wrong, it can be something that just is challenging to come back from. And it can be pretty time consuming if you have to fix full mud system because it's fully contaminated with green cement. So anyway, it's yeah, but again, I think it's worth the conversation. And, you know, hopefully out there, it's not something that people experience often, but at least to be aware of what can happen is important. And just yeah, like we're talking about casing runs, Things can happen. Hopefully not nowadays with, you know, just how many wells we've drilled and everyone kind of knows what they're doing. But again, it's the reality and it costs money. And so it needs to be discussed. So Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, kind of summarizing everything here is, you know, being aware of, you know, there's when can I actually circulate fluid? What yeah. can I do with my fluids? Hydraulically, you know, what can I model? What can I do to kind of stay ahead of things or, you know, plan ahead? Yeah. And then... What can I expect once I've got casing on bottom and cemented? How do I get us moving ahead? And so I thought, you know, as much as casing run is is a lot about hardware and a lot of it, it's basically, you know, casing. I think the reason that there's not like no one ever sat me down and explained all the stuff about float equipment, all that is it's really basic stuff when you see it. Right. And I think that inherently is like why no one bothers to explain it is they think it's obvious. Yeah. But then at the same time, these things do start to affect, we can make recommendations or help, you know, contribute. Sometimes there's nothing we can do, but other times there are. Yeah. Well, and you know, it kind of brings up another good point is I think folks that have been in the industry for, you know, at least a considerable amount of time, take a lot of things for granted. There's a lot of, I mean, when you're new, whether it's a rig hand or mud engineer or directional driller or whatever, I mean, really any role for that matter, when someone's kind of teaching you or training you there's so many things that that person training takes for granted that they've known and they've seen that just is like kind of you know another sort of day in the neighborhood whereas like someone like you and i who are just starting may not understand that and then it can make things challenging because then you're like oh well like this is what happens or running casing but then all of a sudden if say the company rep asks you a question or like something's going wrong you're like well no one told me this like this can actually happen and so, yeah, I think it's just, you know, if you're out there, especially now, and we had an episode about, you know, with oil prices going up and things getting busy and new people being introduced to different roles. Yeah, just kind of sit back and think a minute if you're training someone, like, what are some of the things that I do every day that this individual probably isn't aware of that I should even, like, explain, even though it's super elementary, 
it may help that individual with their job. So, and like you said, like just when you can circulate when you're running case and when you can't, like if you're a mud engineer and you're somewhat new and all of a sudden you just, things start getting tight, if you pick up the phone and say, Hey, you know, do we have a reamer shoe on there? Do we have a float sub? Like, Hey, cause I know if, you know, from what I understand, if we can't circulate, if we're floating this casing and just let me know if we are. And then at least you kind of look like you know what you're doing, which I'm sure you do, but just kind of being one step ahead of the game is always important. So yeah, I just wanted to close out with that, man. Okay. Well, I don't know. Part of this sort of came up in passing recently and I was like, you know what? I know we did an episode and I think we focused a lot on the hydraulic side of things and cementing, but I felt like there was a little bit more. And so this is like an expanded edition. Cool. So you go back and listen to the previous episode, but um, hopefully we don't completely contradict ourselves. Yeah, um, that's always the tricky part, right? I said, what? Right. But no, again, I love revisiting topics. It just kind of helps elaborate on certain things. And if anyone out there, again, has any thoughts or questions or any experience on some of the things we talked about today, or if there's a new piece of casing equipment out there that's new and revolutionary that we hadn't talked about, let us know. Because, I mean, again, there's so much out there and technology and all that happening. So you can hit us up on LinkedIn. We're always on there. At the flow line at aesfluids.com is the email. If you want to reach us on email, please follow us on LinkedIn, share this episode. And with that said, be safe, everyone out there. And we'll chat to you later. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the flow line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.